Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good evening and welcome. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Writers' Festival and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to this wonderful prelude to our festival next week. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Bejigal people and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here tonight. We're here this evening for a very special conversation with Gabrielle Zevin, who's going to be in conversation with journalist from the Sydney Morning Herald, Melanie Kembry. It's the kind of opportunity when one of the books of the moment, um, when uh, Gabrielle is travelling to Australia, we couldn't say no to the opportunity to have her here on this special occasion. She's going to be in conversation with Melanie um, and I'm really delighted uh, to welcome our guests to the stage and to leave you in Melanie's capable hands. Melanie Kembry and Gabrielle Zevin. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival. My name's Melanie, I'm editor of Spectrum at the Sydney Morning Herald and I reckon I've got the best gig of the festival. <laughs> Because I don't know about you, but everyone I've been speaking to is either reading or recommending tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And uh, for those of you who might have somehow escaped the cult status that's been attached to this novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow follows the story of Sadie and Sam, their personal and professional relationship over 30 years, starts when they meet playing Super Mario in a hospital room, and then they make a game together as university students during their summer break, and then they start a games company, Unfair Games as well. The novel is Gabrielle's 10th, and uh, when I checked this morning, it had been on the New York Times bestseller list for 32 weeks. No small feat. (laughs) It was also on pretty much all of the 2022 best of reading lists. And uh, Gabrielle actually became a late-night talk show star when, a few weeks after, Madonna, Megan the Stallion and Idris Elba, you appeared on Jimmy Fallon's show, which is, uh, it's good to see novelists break through into pop culture. So uh, please join me in welcoming Gabrielle. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I hope you have as much fun tonight as you did on Jimmy's show. (laughs) Possibly even more so, you know. (laughs) So uh, you've been, I know, traveling for weeks. You've been to the US, you've been to Europe, you've been here. Uh, When was the last time you actually had a chance to play a game? (laughs) Um, Well, I haven't played anything on a console in a really long time, but I can play things that are very boring on my phone, you know. And and, and it depends on what you define as a game, by the way. You know, I was saying to somebody that, like, because I'm often asked a related question, which is, what is my favorite game? And the fact is, I don't know if this game that I'm going to say is my favorite game or if it even truly is a game, but in fact, uh, I think it is a game, which is Duolingo. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I have, I think, about a five-year streak, and on some level, I think... um, you know, if we kind of expand the idea of what a game is, you know, like it can be something that will can teach us something or that can, you know, I feel like Duolingo is one of the highest uses you have for sort of like uh, 
a gamic construction, you know, to teach us that like the world is connected by all these languages, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. So I did go, I've been traveling everywhere. And so before I go somewhere, I will like learn a little bit of the language, you know? So I was like, how much German can you learn in like six weeks? The answer is, uh, es tut mir leid, ein bisschen, you know? <laughs> So I'm sorry, a little. <laughs> Have you picked up any Aussie ochreisms? <laughs> um, so I had a really embarrassing gaffe uh, this morning. It turns out that it's Maccas, not Mackers. <laughs> so I did learn the horror that, I mean, an, it's a wonderful country, but that you've given McDonald's a nickname. I mean, that just encourages it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd never thought of it that way. <laughs> um, so you said you don't get a lot of time to play games or your games seem to have quite an educational purpose with Duolingo. Um, yeah. But growing up, you your parents worked for a computer company and your characters, Sam and Sadie, are born in the 1970s, which is when modern computing kind of came of age. Mm. Can you talk to about the role computing and technology had in your life as a kid? Yeah, my dad was a computer programmer, and I'm really grateful for that because it gave me a complete lack of fear around technology. I think from an early age, I understood that computer programming is really just using a particular language to communicate something to someone else, you know? And in that way, like, I don't see um, what my dad did as essentially very different from what I do as a novelist, you know? And so that was a really useful stance to have when you go into writing a book about uh, computer games in some way. To not think of it as, like, tech exists in this one, like, space, and then the humanities exist somewhere else. And in fact, that's what drew me to writing about video games, you know? I think because they sit at the the place where art and technology meet. You know, I thought that was a really interesting thing to be writing about. But yeah, the first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, that describes me. <laughs> and in America, we call them the Oregon Trail generation. And here you must call them something else. <laughs> but that's because you were likely to have played this silly computer game, The Oregon Trail, in a computer lab somewhere. Um, and really what intrigued me about it was, as I began to research kind of the history of modern video gaming, and I had played for 40 years without ever thinking this was an interesting subject in any way, just something I did, like many people of my age. But when I began to research it, I realized that the entire history of video games were kind of, or what we think of as modern video games, were contained within my lifetime. And so I began to see what the story was. It was um, a Kunstler Roman, a coming of age of, of an artist story, but also it was going to be the coming of age of an industry. Hmm. And were you always an avid gamer? Why, <laughs> through your life, like when you were little, you played, and then did you continue playing as an adult? Or what drew you back to video games for this novel? <laughs> Um, yeah, I always played as a kid. My dad, he brought home a work computer, and it had some games preloaded on it, including this one called Alley Cat. And the reason I loved Alley Cat was because you play a cat who jumps on a garbage can, and behind this fence is a series of apartment windows, and inside each apartment window is a little mini game. And so it's funny, I, I realize that I go through my life, and every time I see an apartment building, I think about this game because... What it sort of said to me was, like, behind every window, anywhere you go, like, there's a whole story and a whole life going on. And so, in a sense, even this very early computer game 
kind of changed a little bit about the way I saw the world. And so I, I started to wonder how many other people had played different games and these games they played like lightly changed how they saw like their relationships, their lives, all those kinds of things. Um, but, but yeah, like my dad brought home this work computer and I just realized that like it was going to solve a very particular problem for me, which was the problem of solitude. So basically I had been an only child and if I played like a game, it was a board game and I would have to pretend to be both sides and <laughs> there's nothing sadder than like playing Monopoly <laughs> alone. Though you would always win. Right. <laughs> and then like, you know, the computer game showed up and, and I was like, wow, so there's someone to play with. A human friend, you know, no, just actually a, a robot friend. And, but as I get older, I, I mean, something I really enjoy about games are kind of like the more of the like Nintendo ethos where you game to uh, be with your family and to play with your family to an extent. I actually think of all the consoles, um, the one that captures our age the most is actually the Nintendo Switch, you know? Because it's this kind of like crazy switch between the need for us to be completely alone and in a thing that is really looks exactly like a cell phone, you know, and then being together, you know, it really captures the this sort of like uh, opposing tendency that we all have in this age, you know. And when did you think that this this form and this industry was ripe for, for a novel? Had you always had that idea always been with you or was, was it when you came to writing this novel? You thought, oh, this is the world I want to get into? Um, you know, I don't... I had kind of been thinking what would my next novel be. I'd had a novel that did really well before this. And the, the funny thing about that is people don't tend to talk about how like money affects the art you make, but I think that's very much a theme of the book as well. But because I'd had this book that did really well, it gave me more options about sort of what I might do next. And I thought like given more time, like what would I want to say if I could kind of say anything, you know? Um, and so I had written an idea down in my notebook. I keep notebooks and they're not like attractive at all. You know, <laughs> how you'll see like some author's notebook in a museum and it'll look really beautiful. Mine don't look that way. They look like grocery lists and <laughs> stuff like that. But I'd had an idea that I wrote down. I was like, oh, the story of these uh, two people that make video games and the games they make mirror their lives. And on that same page, there's like a bathroom floor plan I drew because we have this really tricky bathroom in our house that you need to try to fit like a shower and a sink and a toilet and it's really like complicated to get that done. And so on that day, there's like a lot of complicated measurements about this bathroom <laughs> and then this idea. And so, you know, you never really know what idea you're going to follow in any way. Um, for me, I think I like, when I start to have an idea, it's kind of like, maybe you're meeting somebody you might sleep with, you know, and you'll Google some things about them, you know, and <laughs> have do some. Have a little flirt with Yeah, them. have a little flirt, do some <laughs> research, see, is, is it worth spending more time with this idea? Does you the know? wine make it seem better? <laughs> <laughs> it rarely does it, you know. <laughs> if you need wine, it's probably the wrong idea, if you, if you get my drift. But, but yeah, so like I, I do, I explored it for a while and I was really excited by it and a little bit scared of it. I was excited by it because I realized how much I didn't know. I'm not a video game designer. And although I was lucky enough to have parents who worked in computers and had played my whole life, you know, it, it, I didn't know if, like, 
how I was going to really uh, make these people feel real, mm-hmm. you know. And so I started kind of just like an English major would forming a sort of canon of video games because my whole life I had never played a video game with an ulterior motive. I'd only ever played a game because I thought it seemed fun, you know, but when I started researching this book, I realized Sam and Sadie were going to need to have taste beyond what my taste had been, you know. So I asked everybody I knew, like, what are the most formative video games that you've played and what are the most moving experiences you've had gaming? And I began to form a canon and I approached it in a really nerdy way. How <laughs> you know? many hours do you think you clocked up on the consoles? Uh, well, I killed a PlayStation, so I guess that's all you need to know, <laughs> you know. Um, in the novel, there are so many moments that actually kind of feel like scenes in video games. Like if you think of how the novel starts with Sam and Sadie, and Sam has this choice where he can either call out to Sadie or he mm. cannot call out to Sadie. And Sadie has this choice where she can either give him her game solution or not give him her game solution. And a lot of video games are kind of structured around these choices for characters that take them on different arcs. Do you think kind of all this research of video game influenced how you wrote as a writer? You know, I thought about that question, and as an author, um, in a sense, the person who goes out and promotes the book is there like several years after the person who, uh, you know, wrote it, mm-hmm. right? So that person, me, is reverse engineering all these ideas, like, yes, definitely, I, I did that, I wanted it to feel gamic, <laughs> you know? Um, and I don't think, in a way, that was not something I was pursuing. What I wanted, really, was sort of the opposite thing, um, which was that that games wouldn't feel like something exotic, you know, that it wouldn't seem like... Um, but, but I think, in a sense, life is like a game in that you could do this, you could do that, you know. So maybe in the ways in which life is a game, you do see that in the book. But if you think about, like, the first scene, um, you know, you have... Sam and Sadie in the train station, I was aware that that scene uh, was a little bit like a video game insofar as when I started thinking about these two characters, I asked myself who games, you know, and in the case of Sadie, I think the reason she games is because her sister almost died when she was a kid and games are a way to uh, escape mortality. But when you think about Sam, um, he games for that reason, but also because he has a body that doesn't always work perfectly, you know? And so in a sense, um, if you look at Sam in the opening scene of the book, like the train station is like a really hard video game to him, you know? It's difficult when you have a body that is disabled to get through a public space. And so in a sense, video games are quite easy for Sam, Sam, but like the video game that is actually life is quite challenging, you know? Mm. And talk to me a bit more about Sam, because I know you've said that he's the character you've written that you see as closest to, to yourself. Depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell us what, on, on what day do you see yourself as similar to Sam? I mean, in a sense, the way you write a character generally is, I think... So when you've written maybe one novel, you're drawing upon yourself and people you know, and then when you get to like a second or third novel, you kind of have to figure out how to actually write people that aren't you or people that you know. And so in a sense, I think the way you write a character is you uh, consider yourself very closely. And so you have to be extremely narcissistic and just realize uh, that you are the center from which all of the other characters emerge, by which I mean... To write a character, I have to acknowledge my own like prejudices and privileges and um, where I'm good and where I'm crappy. 
And everybody I write is either some amount close to me or some distance from me. You know, so in a sense, like Sam and I share an ethnic background. We're both Korean and Jewish. So those are ways in which we're close. But then there are other things about Sam that are a greater distance from me. Um, so, but in a way, I think probably I'm closer to, to Sadie, you know, than I am to Sam. I think a lot of her, her particular, uh, I don't want to say struggles. That sounds very dramatic, but a lot of her, you know, difficulties in being a woman in the arts are things that came from my own experiences, you know, as a woman in the arts. Mm. And tell us about Marx as well. I, I, we were talking earlier. A lot mm. of uh, a lot of readers <laughs> have, have questions about about Marx. What, why did you feel that Marx was? They have, Sam and Sadie have this very intense, intimate relationship, and then Marx is as intimate with each of them, but it's kind of a different relationship to, to both of them, and he kind of moderates them. Why why did you feel Marx was essential to having the novel? I mean, so many reasons. I, I actually always laugh because Marx is the character that is the least like me, you know? And so in a sense, I always feel really like comfortable with the idea that everyone says they like him the best because in fact, he is not like me at all, you know? <laughs> and I think sometimes you write somebody because um, they can give you a little window into uh, maybe the kind of person you might like to be. Like, I might like to go through life more like Marx, you know, more easily picking up friends wherever I went, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But really, for me, the Marx character is so much about, uh, I think, the fact that art does exist with commerce, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Marx is really a character who came from the fact that, you know, Sam and Sadie are artists. There's always a, like, anecdote I remember so I don't, the film director, Mike Nichols, he was friends with Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher, who were once married, you know, and they divorced as well. And so when they divorced, Mike Nichols said something like, too many uh, flowers, not enough gardeners, yeah. you know. And in a way, that's what Marx is. He is, a, he is a gardener, you know, and you need that because if you are somebody who makes things, at some point you need people to go out and say, uh, oh, uh, this thing is good, you ought to read it, you know? And so in a sense, that is what Marx was for me. Mm. You were talking about art and commerce, and that is one of the great tensions of the novel and this idea of greatness. And Sam has this perception that greatness is popularity, and mm. Sadie has this perception that greatness is art. Do you think that binary exists? I don't think that binary exists anymore. <laughs> but maybe when I was their age, I did. You know, I think in a sense, uh, you know, maybe young artists can think that, and it's not bad to think this, but to not actually think about the fact that somebody has to go sell a book or somebody has to go sell the game, um, and that if you get to continue to make art, it's probably because the other art you did did somewhat well, unless you're supporting yourself in some other way. You know, but I think so much of that conflict between Sam and Sadie comes from class, you know, and in America, class largely means money, not so much accent or anything like that, you know. And really, you know, if you think about the way Sam and Sadie meet, they meet in a hospital because in America, at least, the one equalizer is health, you know. Sadie is from a wealthy family, Sam is poor. And what I really wanted to show with that was how many of your decisions get made because of the circumstances of your birth, you know? And so in a sense, you know, Sam is somebody who doesn't have any safety net. You know, he has to, uh, 
he needs these games, at least at first, to be successful. Otherwise, you know, he has health care to worry about. He has all kinds of things to worry about that Sadie doesn't have to worry about. And so in a sense, it's a luxury for Sadie to say that, like, you know, a great game is, is just art, you know. Um, and, and yeah, so really that's where that came from. And they have to, they talk a lot about, particularly as the gaming business becomes more successful, they talk a lot about the concessions they have to make to, to the people playing their games. And in their first game, Ichigo, they, they changed the character from being ungendered to being a boy because, right. you know, Dov, the gaming professor, <laughs> says that it's going to be more successful that way. <laughs> as a writer, how conscious of you are, how conscious of you or do you think writers need to be of, of their readers while they're in the process of writing a novel? Is it better to think of them as you write or to just cut them out until the end? Well, uh, it's an interesting question because when you write your first novel, you have some uh, plausible deniability about the fact that there's an audience, you know? But for every... No an audience who wants to see right. your face. <laughs> right. It wants to not just see the side of it. Come on, you know? Um, but after the first novel, it would be sort of an act of... Um, I don't know, low-level psychosis to pretend that I don't think an, an audience exists. You know, I'm aware that that is true. But I will say, I think I, over the years, factored the audience, you people, a bit too much, you know? And, um, and it wasn't kind of until maybe even the pandemic happened that I realized I had been doing that, you know, that I had been thinking uh, too much about, like, kind of, even what, how an audience in the future might feel beyond even whether I liked it sometimes, you know. And so it took me a long time. And so when I wrote uh, this book, uh, you know, a lot of it was, it was, took about four years, but a lot of it was written during the pandemic. And I remember thinking, I feel really alone. And in a way, that was an excellent place to be in for writing a book, you know. And... I think, in a way, what that solitude gave me was a little bit of confidence that uh, I was more alone with these characters and more alone with myself. And so the funny thing is I sort of decided that I didn't, that if the world ended, and you have to remember, we all kind of thought it might, you know, it seems like we've all blocked it out now. But in fact, things looked very bleak in 2020 um, in an unprecedented way. And so I kind of just thought to myself, if the world ended, um, I wanted to see what would happen with these characters come what may. And, uh, you know, the surprise of the book, because it has done quite well, is I, when I wrote it, I thought, um, no one will like any of these people. No one will have, uh, these are strange intellectuals in a profession no one understands, and mostly uh, a pastime that people disparage. <laughs> You know, and so in a sense, I wasn't necessarily hugely confident that it would resonate with anyone beyond myself. And then the surprise is how many, like, at this point, thousands of people have come up to me to say, you wrote this book for me, but I'm quite sure I did not write it for you. <laughs> you know, occasionally I will meet somebody, like I have a friend who's a kind of well-known game designer, and, you know, I met him through this book, and he said to me, you wrote this for me, and I'm like, well, maybe kind of for you, you know? <laughs> But mostly, like, it, it'll be amazing the ways in which people find that it's for them. And so it's actually a thing that makes me feel less existentially lonely. I think there are things that, uh, I don't know. It, I don't really have good answers to this question. But, but, <laughs> but yes, I find that there is some strange balance that you have to keep in your mind of knowing that the audience is there and 
kind of not caring about them too much. Yeah, and you've, you've kind of hinted about kind of your own journey as an artist. And in this novel, Sam and Sadie's artistic journey, like it's not just an uphill climb. There are highs after their first game. There are lows. Yeah. Um, there are big responses and there are less big responses. Uh, and you've had novels, I think it's fair to say, that have made huge, you know, mm. had huge responses, the storied life of AJ yeah. Vickery, obviously this novel, your YA novels. How have you kind of managed to balance that sense of some novels making this very big mark in the sense of this one and some novels making a smaller mark. <laughs> Not small, that sounds up. Wait, a smaller mark, which we can also a call, call a, a failure, if do you, you will. Do you, you know? call them that? No, I do actually. I mean, do? but not only, I mean, but in a sense, only in one, one thing. Like, you know, I, I've had novels that didn't do well, but that were for me, like ones where I learned a lot and kind of paved the way to do things that uh, I learned from from failing with that one, you know? And so in a sense, I call them failure, failures only insofar as I'm not being precious about it. I think the way to, uh, you know, when I told my agent what the book was about, I said, it's about love, art, video games, time, and failure. And he said, ooh, um, maybe not the failure part though. <laughs> Americans don't like that, you know? Um, so, but I could have equally said it's about love, art, video games, time, and success. You know, and I think uh, when I started out, I had two novels come out that first year, and one did really well, and one did really poorly. And I remember walking around New York City and thinking, like, everybody knew that Gabrielle Zevin's first novel had failed. Like, the grocery store clerk is mocking me, and then that kind of thing. And then you realize nobody's thinking about you at all, you know? <laughs> Nobody cares. The best thing about failing is it gets really, really quiet, and you can just, nobody calls you, you know, they have... <laughs> Um, and you can just kind of move on and do something else. And so it's like the thing I know as an artist is the best thing you can do for yourself is to get really good at failing, you know, and to kind of recognize it as the essentially creative place it is. You know, success, happiness, some of those emotions, they pass very quickly for me. And I'm just ready for the next bit of happiness, you know. But failure, you can go live in, you know, <laughs> and go dwell in it a bit. And so in a way, I think, you know, if you, uh, if you look at the book, really, it is about sort of the fact that they have this really great success out of the gate. And then it's about all the things that are the complications that come with uh, a success, you know. And, and in a way, I think we kind of just take success to mean... When I say failure, you're like, would you call them a failure as if that's very bad? But like, in fact, uh, success can also be very bad. You know, success is not a particularly creative place. You know, success is a place where people are like, can you please go do that thing again? You know, versus failure, you know, you're not going to do that exact thing again, you know? <laughs> and so in a sense, success can lead to a place um, that is very repetitive artistically. So I'm sort of grateful for all the failures, not at the time, by the way, but the best, <laughs> but sitting here now, I'm like, you know, boy, uh, that was tough, but then, but I, but I actually feel grateful for those things. Mm. Yeah. 
And maybe that kind of is a good point to lead us into talking about the title of the novel, yes. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And we are in the National Institute right. of Dramatic Art. Um, the title is a reference to Macbeth's um, speech in Right. And so I've been saying, I've been saying Macbeth in theatres all around the world, <laughs> which is apparently very bad luck, but has been fine luck for me, you know? <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like things have gone fine, you know? I'm almost at the end of a whole year of touring, so I feel confident that unless things, you know, anyway. <laughs> It'd be uh, bad if we broke That's that. That's right, pattern. yeah. But I do hear you can recite the, uh, the speech. I can, but not in Australia. <laughs> There's a rule about it. Um, but no, it's one of the first bits of Shakespeare I ever committed to memory. And, um, you know, obviously the, the title is a reference to Macbeth. I like when I'm starting out a novel to have the beginning and a sense of the ending, you know, and really I had neither of those things when I started this book and I didn't really have the title until I was maybe halfway through. And I wanted a title that had a certain sort of grandeur to it because I know the preconceptions people would bring to the subject of video games. People think of it as not art at all or they think of it as low art or something in between. And so I wanted a title that said, no, this, this subject is, is important. You know, there's a richness and it's part of a sort of, uh, a, of a greater world of humanities that includes games, theater, art, film, novels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, uh, you know, the title does come from one of the, bleak, the bleakest lines in all of Shakespeare, um, Macbeth, Act Five. And I always tell people, hey, I'm about to spoil Macbeth for you. Um, but I feel really confident doing that because if you haven't read it by now, you know, it's, you know, you've had 400 years. Um, but yes, it's about uh, nothing good happens to anybody in Act 5 of Macbeth. Macbeth's wife has died. There's the spoiler. I'm sorry. And, you know, he's going to fail in his military conquests. And it's a speech about the bleakness of life. But the character, Marx, who uh, invokes it in my novel, he finds great hope in it. The idea that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. And conveniently for me, he also finds a metaphor for video games with their infinite lives and infinite chances at redemption. So... <laughs> okay, so I flagged that we wanted to talk about Marx a bit. So we're trying, going to try not to give any spoilers, but I know a lot of book clubs talk about this issue of um, a moment involving Marx. Yes. Um, very sad moment. If you're on Book Talk, you would have seen a lot of tears. Um, this chapter, if we can find a difficult way to navigate through it without giving too much away, why, why did you want to include that? Why was that an important part of this story for you? Well, obviously, the most important thing for a book right now is that people find something they can cry over on Book Talk. <laughs> you know, that you know, the, the road to like huge bestsellerdom is just that. You know, how sad can I look while I shoot myself? You know, basically. But, uh, you know, if you look at the book, um, so this is going to be a long and complicated answer. So just <laughs> buckle everyone up. prepare. Um, <laughs> If you look at the table of contents of the book, every single uh, of the, the kind of sections, they're all in plural. Unfair games, uh, influences, freights and grooves. And the only one that's a singular is the NPC. Because really the whole rest of the book is about Sam and Sadie, this like collaboration. And the NPC is about Marx. And so he's the one singular uh, section of the book. And really for me, it is about uh, 
a way in which they have seen Marx as somebody who is an NPC, somebody who facilitates them and who they don't think is fully creative. And I wanted in that moment it to be kind of like an aria, you know, where all of a sudden you see this character who you kind of think is maybe even two-dimensional, but you see him in his full humanity. So the NPC is meant ironically. Now, in terms of the form of it, it's in second person, and so that's the you form. I had played with it once before and thought, uh, I don't know that I got it right. So I had known that if you make a choice of going into second person, you need to like have every kind of word um, exactly right because people, when you try anything formally strange, you will you will invariably lose them. You know, <laughs> and so I knew this more than any other section uh, needed to be sort of perfect, really. You know, if it was going to work at all, that some percentage of people would just. Be like, I don't want to be in the second person. What is this? You know, um, you know. But really, f for me, uh, this section is meant to to just put you. And I, this is something I love about books: the fact that they can just put you in somebody else's shoes for a moment. Um, if you think about video games and the history of them, uh, the earliest uh, video games were in second person. They were sort of written like interactive fiction. And so a game like Colossal Cave Adventure, which is entirely text-based, is you are standing in a cave, there are two glasses of water. There aren't actually. <laughs> there are two glasses and no water. <laughs> but So this is some game that we don't know how to solve. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> Hit the right command. <laughs> I think I just won, right? Yeah. I just made something happen here. You broke the code. I broke the code. Um, but yeah, but the, the kind of interactive fiction is sort of, again, the, the very earliest games were written in this you point of view. And so it is also a section that's celebrating, again, the very form of video games to see if I can do something incredibly emotional with something that I know will be very alienating. And so... Um, Creatively, the good thing about having written a lot of novels, some of which, what did you call them? That were like not, we, we didn't use the term failure. What was your term for it? Uh, uh, quieter, maybe. Quieter. <laughs> some of the, the things I've done with less amplitude, you know, the good thing about that <laughs> is that you, I've learned a lot about sort of reader response. And I know what happens when I do one thing or if I don't do it precisely right. And I know when I'll lose some people. And that, or I know when somebody will feel like it's slow because, in a sense, I can uh, I have had this, these experiences. And so, when I made this choice, the thing that was really exciting was that for a lot of people on TikTok, they have found that it works. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it does kind of lead on to another um, section of the book that follows. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the pioneer scene yes. where Sam and Sadie kind of disappear into a video game and the chapter is written um, from their character's point of view in the video game. Yeah. Firstly, I want to ask, how much fun was it to make up so many video games for this novel? Oh, less fun than you'd think. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because in a sense, the games are very serious. Actually, I found the whole process on a related question. Somebody asked me, like, you know, you know, what's the, what, what's the most fun thing about writing novels? And I was like, there are fun things about it. <laughs> I didn't know. I think I might have been doing it wrong. But, but in fact, it was fun writing this novel. I just had to recalibrate my definition of fun because in a sense I felt 
intensely engaged in a way that I had not felt before. You know, I think for most of my career, uh, I had felt like I really didn't quite know how to to do it, even though I had written novels and some of them had even done well. You know, Sam and Sadie talk about it, this kind of long period of time when your abilities and your tastes do not quite align. And that was something I felt very strongly. Um, and maybe like as a professional novelist, it would have been great for me to teach myself to ignore that feeling a little bit, but I never really quite could, you know? And so I did um, have fun while writing this novel actually, because I finally kind of felt like, oh, I, I know something about how to do it and what novels can do, um, which felt quite good to me. Um, but, but in terms of the games and if they were fun, you know, none of it is fun in that sense, but like I, the way I approached it was just thinking like, what were the games that were hits in any particular year? What could the technology do? Because that would limit it. And what kind of stories would be in these games that could reflect the lives of my characters and what they were doing? And so the factors, the criteria, in a sense, made the puzzles of what the games would be kind of quite, quite fun to solve, you know? Mm. And uh, Sam and Sadie working out their games and working with each other and having their conflicting kinds of uh, ideas of how the games kind of should work is uh, obviously a continuing um, point of tension throughout mm. the novel for them and working that out. And I know you work with your partner who's a film director a lot, particularly um, on movies. Mm. Uh, how do you find that process? Um, I like collaboration. You know, I like the ways in which it's not the solitude of writing novels. You know, I like what it does to uh, just intensely be creative with somebody else. You know, I think uh, there's such, you know, a good collaboration involves an intense vulnerability. It involves an intense sense of play, no matter if it's a game that you're making or something else, you know. And so uh, I love that. I love working with my partner. And, you know, we've had things that did well and we had things, we have had things that didn't do well. And Quiet. certainly <laughs> in my 20s, um, you know, there were many times, much like Sam and Sadie, where I cared more about uh, being successful than being kind, you know? And, and so much of the book really is about what it is to be a person in your 20s and to just want to do um, great work more than you even want to be a a nice person, you know. What advice would you give Sam and Sadie about working uh, working collaboratively? I would give them no advice. <laughs> I give no one any advice anymore, you know. I was doing a podcast interview last week because you can do, I don't know if you know this, the number is you can do two million podcasts when you promote a book. It might be, but I did two million and four now because I've done several in Australia as well. And so I did one and it was, uh, the interviewer was a very smart girl in her 20s and she said to me, uh, <clears throat> so uh, you're 45 years old and it's been 20 years since your first novel came out and I said, hold on, it's been 18 years, you know? <laughs> and uh, she said, can you uh, tell our listeners how can we who are in our 20s become successful more quickly than that? <laughs> You know, <laughs> and I said to her, uh, you know, funny, the funny thing is when I told my partner this story, you know, his reaction was like yours, kind of like an incredulous laugh. But I didn't think it was a funny question because in my 20s, I would have had the same question. <laughs> I was like, show me how to get there faster and I shall do it. 
You know, I think that's the question you get at like any event you do ever. Like, how do I do this thing? How do I get there? So I really like related uh, to that a bit. And, you know, in a sense, the fact is there are no shortcuts. You know, you realize that uh, life is basically just... Um, and why this book was more fun to write than the others is because I've learned to enjoy the process of things much more so. And I think that's really hard to understand when you're in your 20s and you think, I have one minute to become wildly successful or I will die, <laughs> you know, which I certainly felt, you know, I felt, and I wanted to write that in this book, this kind of like urgency people feel in their 20s. I think fiction for a lot of reasons is about like, teenagers, young people, and then they're about married people, you know, <laughs> who are like divorcing and miserable, you know, and then it feels like there's not really any, there's not as much time devoted to anything kind of post-campus novels even, mm -hmm. you know, basically. And so you've written 10 novels, as we mentioned, YA and, mm -hmm. um, and adult fiction. Firstly, do you see that as a division? Well, I haven't written a children's book for a decade, mm -hmm. you know, and so when in the first year I wrote this book, called Elsewhere, which was pretty popular. And that was sold to, to, uh, to a young adult audience because at that time that was a burgeoning category, you know. And, but when I wrote it, I saw it as kind of a cross between, um, like more like a little prince. I saw it like sort of the, the kind of like fantasy novel that children or adults might read, you know, but that wasn't particularly for YA at all. But then the book did well. And as I mentioned, success is boring as hell. And so they were like, do you have another? You know, and the truth is I didn't really have another. You know, even though I, and I feel lots of different ways about this. It's like I told myself, well, we could try, you know. And so I, I did, I kind of, I wrote another. And that was interesting because it taught me a lot about kind of more about the craft about writing, what you would write given parameters versus what you would write if you could do anything. And then after that, I was like, they were like, that one did okay. And they were like, can you do another? And I was like, I don't know what else I have here. But, but I was like, I think I'll try to write a series. And because at least then I don't have to write a 16-year-old girl. She can be 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and she's 25 by the end of it. It was a series that was so convoluted, largely about like um, this girl's struggle with religion and her daddy issues and not really very, um, something that really worked for audiences at all, you know. But I learned a lot again about writing characters um, from doing that. But in fact, after that, I really had nothing else. I definitely had nothing else at that point. And luckily that series did poorly enough that nobody was particularly asking me. <laughs> In the same period of time, um, I also got older because this is how time works, you know. <laughs> so I was like 25 when all this when all this began, and then I'm 35. And at that point, I started to have like my this whole time. I'm also writing uh, fiction for adults, and that is the most egregious thing about writing fiction for children and for adults is that for the rest of your life you have to say, and this one is for adults. You know, <laughs> other people can just say they write fiction. But in fact, um, you know, so I got to a point in my life where um, the adult book started to do really, really well. And I didn't, you know, so it's not to say I would never write, say anything else for children. It's just, I don't necessarily uh, have anything else for them. But that said, I think a lot of people I know, at a certain point, you maybe perhaps, uh, I don't know, it's, it's going to sound strange to say, but you sort of 
if you keep writing about teenagers or children, it becomes kind of like being an anthropologist, you know? You have to study, like, their social cultures, and, <laughs> and I'd have to learn about where they were. And, and so, in a sense, it's not a research project that interests me in that way, you know? <laughs> and so, no, it's been a really long time. Um, the worst thing about it is that, basically, if you've ever written a book for you know, children, and especially for young adult, which has a particular connotation for people. That is a way for people to easily say that the work you do for adults, which by the way, I've been, my first novel was for adults and the whole time I went back and forth, but it's an easy way for people to say that your writing is somehow uh, childish, you know, or to point for the fact that it has less sort of critical weight to it, you know, and, but that's a whole other thing, you know, we could talk about it forever, basically. Mm -hmm. The fact that, again, most writers for children, I think it's like 85% are women, you know, so of course we say that work is less than and not as good. Yeah. But I will say I was always using my full brain when I, whether I was <laughs> writing for children or for adults, I wasn't like, this one's for the kids, let's phone it in, you know? <laughs> that wasn't how I felt about it at all, you know? And we appreciate that. Right, I think the kids appreciated it. They were like, this lady seems like she's really paying attention, you know? <laughs> That's why they were such a big hit, those books as well, with, with younger audiences. Well, two of them were, and then three of them were utterly rejected, you know? So <laughs> Quieter. <laughs> we're quieter, as we say. Shh. Yeah. And uh, we will throw um, to the audience soon for questions. I'm sure we've got a few book clubs with us tonight, so make your discussions public. Um, we'll throw to, a, throw to you in a second. I wanted to ask, so you have um, adapted one of your novels for the yes. screen before, and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow was sold at a very competitive auction to uh, Paramount, and you're writing the screenplay. How important was it to you to be involved in that process? Oh, that's a long answer. So the thing about it is I'm not currently writing the screenplay because the Writers Guild of America is on strike. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I weren't in Australia, supposedly I'd be picketing, you know, yeah. and that's a whole series of things. But, but in fact, I, when I gave it to my, the agent who goes and sells it to movie people, my film rights agent, I said to her, I think this is a limited series. You know, I, I have some sense, I've done adaptation before, I think this story is more something that is suited to television. So of course it's sold in a massive bidding war to, to movies, you know. And, uh, you know, I still question, even as the person who has been working on it, whether it isn't more suited to, uh, to television and the things you can do in television, the fact that there is this kind of 30-year scope of these characters and movies tend to be all external action and everybody's like kissing and fighting and kissing and fighting. And, you know, I'll do these kinds of uh, events and they'll say, what scenes are you most looking forward to seeing in the movie? And I'll be like, I want to see the peach farm. And I, I know that there'll never be the peach farm in the movie because the movie is like 90 minutes long and there's no room for that, you know? And so in a sense, uh, you know, your question was how important was it for me to be involved? I didn't have a strong desire to be involved. Um, but in a sense, I, I am involved, you know, and I think the encouraging thing about it is I don't know that a decade ago that this material would have attracted like a massive bidding war because it stars, um, you know, it's not castable. Like we don't know who is a half Jewish, half Korean disabled person. You know, that's not, there's like, who do you, who's your dream cast? I'll sometimes be asked. I'm like, I don't know. I've never seen this person as a lead in a movie before, you know? <laughs> 
And, you know, there's maybe one name and that would be Sadie, but we don't necessarily, like the person who played Mark, the person who played Sam, they wouldn't necessarily be names. And so the encouraging thing about all this is I think um, with inclusivity being more important and it's not like it's gone far enough for all the problems of Hollywood are solved, I think there is more of an interest in making stories that have people we haven't seen before in them. And so that to me is something that's really encouraging. So I'm happy to be involved in this. And aside from the casting, what do you think are going to be the most difficult scenes for you to write, to make work on the screen, and vice versa? What do you think you'll be able to make work in a different, perhaps better way on on the screen than on the page? Well, uh, in a sense, the most difficult challenge is that the people who bought the material really love it. And again, we've talked a bit about time, and it turns out that it is really difficult to consolidate, like, what is, you know, an over, it really is actually a 500 page novel. My publisher just laid it out to look less scary, you know. <laughs> um, but in fact, uh, you know, to kind of like fit this, this kind of massive novel into the two hours of a movie. In a time when, by the way, the kinds of things people go to see at movies are not character dramas, you know. And so I think the challenges to the film are existential like the things I would have to do to adapt it and have done to adapt it are not always satisfying to the people who bought it because they want to see the peach farm, but they cannot bend 200 pages either to fit that kind of thing into it, you know? And so I think that's the challenge. I think if we make it through all the hurdles and we actually make a movie or something else, um, then we'll have made something great, maybe, you know? (laughs) wanted to ask, if you had to have a cameo in, in the film, what character would you pick? Major character, minor character? If I had to have a cameo in the film, I, we recently made another, my partner and I made another one of my books into the story life of AJ Fickery into a movie recently. And I utterly rejected the idea that I would have a cameo in that film, you know, insofar as I think... Like, I just find author cameos and things to be incredibly awkward, you know? Like, the energy is, like, sucked out of the room when, you know, the author comes on, you know, to be, like, you know, lady sitting in diner with laptop, you know? And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, we saw her at the Sydney, you know, Writers' Festival in the pre-era, and... uh she, uh, yep, that was Gabrielle Zevin. You know, I just feel like that's super, it's just very, very awkward to do that kind of thing. You well, know? you set the scene for a big surprise if you do make if one If I do, <laughs> if you see someone, I was actually quite worried because in the A.J. Fickery movie, in one of the scenes, there's a woman who looks a little bit like me and I was really worried that anybody would think that was me, you know, <laughs> um, but it wasn't, so. <laughs> All right, let's head over to our first question on the left. Hi. Um, I, like you and like Sam, am of Korean and European Jewish heritage. And so I was very interested whenever those identities came into play in the novel. And it seemed to me that the Asianness of the characters was more a part of the novel than the Jewishness. And I was curious as to how that came to be. You know, I feel like the Jewishness is a part of the novel in a significant way. You know, uh, It's like, but possibly I had written about Jewishness more often before. So if there's a balance toward it, it it might be that I had written less about Asianness, you know. But in my mind, if you look at like Sadie's story and the fact that she, uh, you know, the kinds of things she makes, like Solution, for instance, you know, is inspired by her own heritage. And and really the kind of like games that she makes are inspired by... uh, 
you know, her own history. I think you see the Jewishness in the story. But, you know, in a way, I think it had to do with, um, you know, for Sam particularly, like his father just isn't a part of his life. And that's where the Jewish identity comes from for him. But for Sadie, it's, I think, very present in it. In fact, by the way, like there was not very much I cut from the book, but something I did cut from the book is at one point, Mark's <laughs> proposed marriage to Sadie. And Sadie, like, you know, she can't be married to Mark's because like she's already married to Sam effectually. But she says to, to Mark's, um, no, I can't marry you unless you become a Jew. And uh, so there was a, a kind of sex series of scenes that were about Mark's taking Jewish conversion classes in Los Angeles. <laughs> And I won't tell you what happened with, in those scenes because apparently people find it very disturbing, you know? And that marks, you know, he's the guy who like never found somebody he didn't want to sleep with somewhere. Let's just put it that way. And so in any case, um, that is not in the book anymore, which might've given you more of that sense the sort of idea of Bashert um, was sort of in, in the book more. But I definitely see the book as strongly Jewish and Asian, you know? Um, but, uh, but, but maybe with the balance towards more Asian. You know, I saw Sam as sort of a, a, a balance of both of those things, you know. Um, I really enjoyed the sort of non-linear uh, narrative that you put together. It jumps back and forth between the childhoods and the sort of their adult lives. Um, was that a sort of a, a difficult puzzle to put together in the edit or did that sort of flow naturally in the writing process? It's all difficult in a sense, you know. Um, I wouldn't say it was more difficult than anything else, but I wanted to write something that sort of captured the way I think time works. And I, I fussed over the book endlessly. Um, really, for me, uh, the way I work is I read over every single thing I've done to get to the exact moment um, that a reader will be encountering the thing I'm about to work on. So, like, that is a kind of a long process where you're sometimes starting the day by briskly reading 320 pages, you know, or something like that. And, you know, but for me, that's kind of one of the ways I can kind of deal with, like, keep track of time as it is. I keep really complicated timelines, too. Um, and I think, in a way, uh, it speaks to the way I feel about character. I think sometimes I'll be reading a novel and I will feel like the author was sort of getting to know the characters as they wrote, you know. But really, with this novel, I wanted to fully know them on the first page, like know like their whole lives and like being able to move forward and back through time that way. And so that was just a difference of just being able to, again, to not kind of learn about them as I went. So it certainly made particularly just writing the beginning of the novel really, really difficult. Um, so you talked earlier about the title of the book and obviously the theme of video, video games being able to start over and like a chance of redemption. How do you feel like that applies to Sadie and Sam's friendship? Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is humans, we are and are not like video game characters. You know, I think when I started out, I definitely thought the divide between... I think a human's life and a video game character's life was very great. But as I started to write the book, I did realize that every day you're alive is a chance to kind of start over, you know, assuming certain things about your life, you know. And so uh, in a way, you know, I think 
if you look at the, and this isn't, I don't think this is a deep spoiler, but just to say the beginning of the book echoes the ending of the book, you know, and in a sense they are starting over again. You know, I think you can read the beginning as a sort of, you know, fresh start where they're going to do the same things. I mean, the words I use to describe uh, these two scenes, they're significantly similar, you know, scene one to scene, whatever the last scene of the book is, you know, and so... I think it's there, and I think the idea of starting over is always a possibility, um, assuming, again, certain factors in your life that allow it to be possible. It's more possible than one, than one would think, you know. So are you an optimist in real life as well as on the page? No, not really. <laughs> I feel like the most optimistic version of myself pretty much ends up in the books, you know. And in a sense, I think you write... Um, Sometimes I write an optimism that I can't quite feel, you know, and in a sense, <laughs> I think like it's funny, people will sometimes say uh, about something I've written like um, that in fact, you know, that it's like hopeful or optimistic in some way. And what what they will mean sometimes when they say that is that the book is dumb, you know. But in fact, to be hopeful or optimistic in this world, at least for me, requires a great intellectual effort, you know? <laughs> Hi, I'm a big fan. And I was just wondering, the way that you wrote the book in the sort of different ways in each part, like the perspective of characters from the video game or the sort of, I guess I kind of saw it as a report on people and the video game industry. Did that help you sort of attach or detach yourself from the characters and their perspectives rather than writing it in a linear kind of first-person or third-person way? You know, I think I'm playing with things formally. So, like, the uh, the only section where there are, like, interviews is the influences section. And so, to me, that was really about that particular question that uh, all artists get asked, which is, you know, what are your influences? And really how difficult it is to escape these... Uh, again, the early influences you have, particularly in Sadie's case, uh, her mentor Dove, you know. And so that is really the only part in the book, despite uh, the fact that people seem to think that those interviews loom very large, where where I've made that formal choice. And so I did actually, and I'm, I'm saying that by way of saying I did see um, each of the sections as stylistically slightly distinct in some way. So if you look at like the both sides section of the book, you know, that... Uh, kind of splits the book into two. And really, you know, they're making this game called Both Sides, but it's alternating between Sam's point of view and Sadie's point of view. And, you know, really, you know, I think that these kind of formal choices can be expressive of, like, the psychological states of characters, and that's why we do them. But I don't actually do them always for distance, you know? Sometimes I want you to be, like, closer, you know? But sometimes I also want to, like, move you a little farther away. And, but, like, it's not always... I think what I'm saying, though, is that the reader's position to the material, we act as if it's an inevitable and neutral space, but it is not. I have some ability to seat you in this theater, you know? So sometimes I want you to be there. <laughs> and sometimes I'm cool if there's, there's nobody back there, but if you're back there, you know? 
Hi. Um, so what was your balance of the cultural uh, backgrounds growing up and how much has it influenced in your writing style and career moving forward? And the second question, uh, Sam mentioned something like cultural appropriation. He asked a mm. question. So where do you think that fine line is where it's okay for some people and when it's being criticized? But to say, uh, you know, I grew up in a town um, in Florida that was, I was born in New York, but I was raised and went to high school in this town in Florida that was basically, I looked this up recently, 66% Jewish. And so even though I have a Korean mom and a Jewish dad, largely I identified with um, the Jewish things in my town because that was where I was raised, you know? And I remember when I visited Asia for the first time, I was like, huh. I think my whole life and the things I would have written about would have been different if I'd been raised somewhere where there were a lot of Asian people. And so in a sense, what I'm talking about is the fact that the way we see ourselves, we think of identity as fixed, but in fact, it's always a little bit in flux depending on where you are in the world. And so that was kind of what I wanted to, to show uh, with the Sam character, the way that when he is um, among Asians, he feels more and less Asian, you know. But so for me though, um, I am half Jewish and half Korean, but I never thought that was anything interesting. And that probably speaks more to the fact that, you know, I was raised somewhere that the racism was subtle and obvious, you know? And so, if anything, when I started out, I saw fiction as a kind of mask I could wear. And so I wanted the characters to be as distant from me as possible. You know, and that in a sense that allowed me a freedom because I wasn't like stuck with being Gabrielle's oven and nobody would have to think that like the parents in the novel were my parents or anything like that. But over the years, it became less interesting to me to wear that mask. Um, and I started to let it slip. And so by the time I write this novel, you know, and I can see it over the years that I start writing people that are closer and closer to me. Um, by the time I write this novel, um, really, I, it was finally very freeing to write some people that were so close to me in so many ways. And not even just like that Sam is half Jewish and half Korean, or that Sadie has elements of my background, or that, you know, Sam went to Harvard and so did I. But to kind of draw on these things seemed um, almost like, I, I don't know, it seemed to me almost a little bit revolutionary to me in my own mind. Which is to say the revolution was that I realized... Um, that say, I know that for instance, this, I'm gonna mention somebody who has a certain cultural burden now, but if you think of Woody Allen, right? <laughs> and we'll only think of one part, but Woody Allen takes for granted when he is a young person that like his point of view is essentially interesting and will be relevant to people, but that was not something I ever took for granted, maybe because of being a woman or because I had never seen, I had certainly never met a half Jewish, half Korean writer or seen one that was successful or anything like that. And so in a sense, the, the revolutionary thing for me was realizing that until I kind of, I think, positioned myself in a more forward way in my books, that in a sense there would always be a distance that wasn't interesting. But to get to appropriation. <laughs> we'll need another few hours. <laughs> you know, um, I think in the book, like where that happens, Sam is giving an interview. It's actually, it turns out to be, 
if you put the book in order and or reorganized all the scenes, that would be the actual last scene in the whole book, the interview he gives about Ichigo. I think it would be around 2014 or something like that. So chronologically, that's the very end of the book. What was interesting to me is um, like having now lived a little bit of time, just realizing how the things that we thought were like certainties um, have changed, you know. And so, what was what I wanted to explore, and I don't have any answers about about appropriation really. But the thing that interested me was that Sam and Sadie could make the game Ichigo, and they could love these Japanese references, and it can be 1995, and the word appropriation never occurs to you. And then if you live longer, the things you thought you were fine about, uh, people can look back and say, <laughs> you probably, you, you stole references from a culture that wasn't yours. And so I was interested in how you can be on the right side of things at one point and then be on the wrong side as time moves on. Um, and so really that was more the thing. As a novelist, I think uh, I've sort of given up on the idea of the novel as a vehicle for social change. <laughs> Which is to say, when I started out, I really believed I was going to convince people of things, you know? And I think as I wrote uh, more novels, and sometimes people will think this sounds cynical, I realized that's not what the novel's meant to do. I'm not going to convince anyone of anything, and I don't try to anymore. I think what the novel can do is, I'm not trying to tell you how to think, but I'm trying to reflect the times that we live in, in all their complexity and all their glory, <laughs> such as it is, you know? And so, for me at least, um, when I think about uh, writing this book, I'm thinking about the fact that the thing I think a novel can do really well, and the thing it can do better than a tweet, is that it's a slower form, it can reflect our lives a little better, and that the highest purpose of it is really contained in the word novel itself, which is of course synonymous with the adjective new. And what I wanted to do was, again, maybe just reflect some of the things that are things we think about and the ways we have thought about them across time. So, And we're very, very tight on time. So maybe if we could just whiz through some questions and then I'll kind of, we'll see what we can, uh, we can pull out to answer as many as possible. Hi, thank you. Um, a lot of people would say that this book has a lot of elements of um, writing about class struggle. How conscious was that? And how, how much did you think about that when you, when you wrote the book? It's really a personal question yes. about how much um, feminism in the gaming world was on your mind. You use textual references really beautifully in this book with Emily Dickinson and the video games references and um, Shakespeare. How do you decide what to include, what references you want to use, and how do you decide what you don't want to use? Um, I wanted to know what the research process was like for writing about Sam's injury and whether you spoke to anyone while you were writing it who helped you write about that and also if you've spoken to anyone since then who has um, told you that they really resonated with it. Okay. Well, uh, I feel well, like we might have touched a bit on the issues of social change that these questions... Oh, wow. You're, uh, so you're cutting people. <laughs> Did you know that this was going to be so brutal? No, I didn't know I had it in me. Yeah. Uh, would, did oh, you wow. want to, feminism and the issues of class, and I do think you kind of answered that when you were looking at those issues of social change and the novel's ability to do it, but did you want to address those issues of whether you intentionally tried to explore class and the idea of feminism or whether you're trying to bring those theories into the novel directly? 
Yes, I mean, I, I'll answer that briefly, um, even though we did touch upon it briefly, uh, which is to say, to me, that scene that you mentioned is probably, uh, you know, one of the most important scenes in the book. I know it's ridiculous to call something the most important scene in your own book, but it but it did feel important to me. Like, again, to me, it was so much about the idea of uh, how much your resources do determine the things you can do in in this world, you know, and so... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be brief. <laughs> yeah, I'm being pithy, I guess. <laughs> I like the lights were off. Yeah, <laughs> um, and over on this side, we had two questions that I'm finding harder to link. But um, we had the issue of the research. Well, I'll go with Emily Dickinson. Let's yeah. do that. So I'm right. not going to be able to tell you how I managed to put all the references in the book. To be honest, that would take a while. But you know, the poem begins. Uh, the book begins with a poem from Emily Dickinson. Um, you know, that is. You know, that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the group. And that is a poem that I've thought about um, pretty much every day since I first read it, which was probably when I was 16. And I always tell people that, in fact, um, if you look at that poem, it starts out with a riddle that love is all there is, is all we know of love. And then it moves on <laughs> to a riddle about love that is solved by a machine-based met metaphor. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the group. So really, it is the book... But because I'm not Emily Dickinson, my book takes 130,000 words. <laughs> but really, that's the whole book in about four lines. So, mm. And the other question was uh, research into, into Sam's medical condition. I did a lot of research into Sam's medical condition. I will say I always feel really uncomfortable meant talking about this because... In a way, it's an invasion of my privacy. And I'm not saying the young woman was invading my privacy, as if I should tell you exactly how I experience my body and how I live in the world, you know, and what pains I've been in, and I should list them to, you know, explain how I might know about these things. But in fact, I did do research, and so something that fascinated me was the idea of phantom pain after one has a limb removed, you know. And this, to me, was a perfect metaphor for... Um, really, Sam's uh, whole experience, you know, the idea that something that was no longer there could feel as if it were there. It seemed like a good metaphor for a game designer who had had an am amputation, you know. And so really, I have um, spoken a lot to people with disability since then, and they do say that the depiction of pain resonates with them. And, and I did speak to people along the way as well when I was working on the book. So that's the semi-pithy response mm. about it. And I think we are, uh, I think that was like uh, playing a game on fast forward, wasn't it? There was it? feminism. What was feminism? Uh, we linked that in with social change. Did we? <laughs> <laughs> she says no. <laughs> no. Uh, the question was about uh, feminism in terms of Sadie being in a male-dominated industry. <laughs> Yes, I mean, so a lot of that was something. Obviously, I think in all industries, mainly the industry I'm writing about, uh, because everything is a little bit of a, a code you write when you write a book, is, is the sexism I've experienced in my own industry, which is publishing. But I did think a lot about the sexism in the game industry particularly. I think, uh, you know, it's something they talk about. You know, there are, like, little myths that every industry has, like the idea that a game with a female main character will not sell as many copies People say that, they repeat it, and they think it's true, even though there are games like Lara Croft, last I looked, is a female main character. And, you know, I think that the problem is, like, you have people and they repeat 
these things that they believe to be true, and then it influences who gets money to make certain kinds of things, and it then influences the kinds of things people we make, and the kinds of things that people are able to make. And so that was definitely in the front of my mind as I was thinking about, you know, Sadie's, Sadie's story in the book in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Done very nicely. Would you ever turn tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow into a video game? I mean, I would love to. It, well, I think somebody asked me if it was fun. Was it you? You did. You asked me, was it fun to make the games? And it, the funny thing is, it's a lot more fun to make the games in a book than it is to make games in real life, is something I do know. And that I don't have to have any burden of making any of these things work. They work or didn't work because I said that they did. <laughs> you know? But in fact, the actual process of making a video game is so cumbersome, arduous, Really, that was synonymous and very expensive, you know. So in a way, uh, like, it would be delightful, and some people have approached me about different different games and things, too. But it would be delightful, I think, to, for it to exist that way. And I think you'd have a lot of readers here who would go out and pick up a Switch or a, or a PlayStation to play it on a, on a, on a screen. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. This is clear we could have asked you uh, questions for, for days. Uh, thank you for coming tonight, and please join me in thanking Gabrielle. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.